Listen to this morning's text. This is from Matthew, I'm sorry, it's from Luke chapter 22. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed. There's programming down the hall for them. And to the rest of you, thank you for being here today at the 9 o'clock service at Community Christian Church. I know, I know Amy dressed me today, okay? I know. It was a uh, Sunday evening. It was the spring of 2013. Amy and I were out of town. Our kids are home alone, and the phone rings. And on the other end of the phone is our daughter, Delyn, and I could tell right away things aren't right. There was panic in her voice. She said, Dad, there's a storm, and it's hailing, and hail is coming through the window. What do I do? And I said, stop the car. (laughs) Pull over. And get in the center, away from the windows, even better if you can find a tree or a house or something to park under or whatever. And and now I'm panicked, right? I don't know what what to do. And she said, Dad, I'm not in my car. I'm in my room. Oh, hailstones are ending up on the bedroom floor. My mind just went to the car because she's a teenager and that's where she lives, right? Some of you were around for that storm in 2013, and not many of us were spared from baseball-sized hail, right, literally coming through the windows. Hail shredded siding, uh, totaled roofs for months and months. Every house in town and building in our town looked like somebody had used them for target practice. And so we are 300 miles away in that moment. And our kids are having to huddle in uh, the innermost parts of our house to avoid these bombs of hail. And they were definitely old enough to be home without us, but no one's really old enough to go through something like that alone, right? And so this call that she makes is not so much what should I do as it is I'm going through something unexpected, I'm going through something terrible, and I don't want to go through it alone. And so honestly... I don't really remember how the rest of the phone call went, but I can tell you what wasn't mentioned. That's, that's really easy for me to say. As my children are facing the worst uh, hailstorm in the history of Fort Scott or maybe in the last century, whatever, it, it would be pointless for me at that moment to begin a discussion with them about where clouds come from and how clouds form together and what happens when a warm front meets a cold front, or the science behind um, frozen hailstorms and why they, or frozen hailstones and why they form and fall to the ground even when it's 80 degrees outside. None of that information is going to do any good when they're right now in the middle of a hailstorm. 
the best thing that they could hear in that moment was, I want you to get in the middle of the house. I want you to get away from the windows. I know what is happening is unthinkable. I know it's scary, but you're going to be fine. You're going to be, you're you're, going to survive. You just need to ride the storm out, and I am here with you while you do. In other words, the best thing I could do in that moment was focus all of their energy on getting through the storm. There will be time enough later to, dis- to dissect the whys of the storm or uh, dive into how meteorology works. But in that moment, in the middle of the storm, the most important thing always is to make it through the storm safe and intact. And they did. They, they actually lived to tell the tale of at least a half a dozen broken windows in our house and glass on the floor. And they also told of how many of you were willing and came armed with duct tape. Uh, they came, you came to their rescue to seal up the holes in our house. Getting through a storm is an idea that God understands really well. It, it may not be the hailstorm of 2013. Maybe some of you weren't around for that, but you have gone through a storm in your life. Whatever dark clouds rolled in on you, you were surprised, you were stunned, you were hurt, and very often the last thing God will ever do when you are suffering in the middle of a storm like that is tell you the reasons for your suffering. He usually saves that for later. Sometimes it's much later. In some of our cases, we never get the reason. But the one thing that God will always do is to help us make it through the storm in one piece. And so what we're doing uh, in this current series is we're taking a few weeks and we're, we're looking at some prayers that God always says yes to. These are prayers that he doesn't say maybe to or not now to or no to. These are prayers that he uh, says, not says yes to sometimes or most times or once in a while, but these are prayers that God says yes to all the time. And, and our little challenge every week is to begin to pray these prayers And just to see what happens in your life. Have you prayed, Lord, teach me how to pray? We talked about that the first week. Have you prayed, Lord, save me? That's what we talked about last week. Maybe that one came in handy this week as we uh, started school, right? Lord, save me from this school thing. I I hope that they've come to your mind during the day so that you can pray those prayers and stand back and watch what God does. The God, the good Father and how he works in your life. And so the prayer today is one that we reserve for when the storms of life come. No matter who you are, no matter what your situation, God will always say yes to this prayer. Here it is. God, please get me through this suffering. God, please get me through this suffering. That's the prayer. And when we pray that prayer, the answer will always be yes. God will always say I am right here with you. Now, there are lots of kinds of storms. Uh, Some are big. Some are small that we might go through. Every storm that we go through is tortuous in its own way, whether it's toothaches or kidney stones or migraines or depression. Maybe it's frustration at work. Maybe it's anxiety at home. Maybe it's the sad death of an older person. Maybe it's the very unexpected and shocking death of a younger person. Uh, Maybe it's the grief of losing a parent. Maybe it's the unspeakable tragedy of losing a child. Maybe it's the betrayal of a friend. Maybe it's the diagnosis of an oncologist, and maybe it's even sending your phone through the washer. We have those storms. 
They come in all different shapes and sizes, but the type of suffering doesn't matter. In every kind of trouble, this prayer is not to be reserved for the biggest storms in your life. It's every kind of trouble. God will say yes to everyone who comes to him and asks, God, please help me get through this suffering. Now, a little case study that we need to look at is the the scripture that we just read. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The account uh, in in this uh, uh, time in Jesus' life is written about by all three synoptic uh, gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And On what will be the last night of his life, Jesus has just spent his last meal, his last supper with his best friends, and they leave the place where they had gathered to eat, and Jesus leads them, Mark says, to a place called Gethsemane so that Jesus could pray. The other two writers say that they went to the Mount of Olives. They go to the same place. If you're following along in the Jesus story... One thing you know immediately is why Jesus needs to spend time with his Father, why he feels prayer is necessary. He knows that people are coming for him, even tonight. He knows that the sacrifice that he'll make by hanging on a cross is just hours away, literal hours away. And so he wants to spend some time in prayer with God. And Matthew and Mark both say that in this moment, Jesus is distressed. He's troubled. He says, my soul is sorrowful. It means that he feels afflicted beyond measure. He's in anguish. And here's something Mark adds, that he was astonished. He was walking along, and all of a sudden, an incredible, crushing agony comes upon him, and he's astonished by it. It it takes him by surprise. To describe it, he says this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, to the point of death. And what he means by that is, I am being crushed by this pain and this terror and this grief has come down on me and I feel like it's going to kill me right here on the spot. And if you've read any of the Jesus story, you know that Jesus is not really someone who exaggerates. And so something's going on here. Something is up. Something is happening to Jesus in the garden on the last night of his life. And so right away, let's state the very obvious that Jesus knows the cross is coming and all of his life has led exactly to this point. And so we can say it this way, he is in the greatest storm of his life. He's feeling the weight of the storm. It's pressing on him to the point whether he's questioning whether or not he will make it through the storm. And what does he do? He prays. He prays. I want you to look at what his initial prayer is. This is interesting. He says, Lord, take this cup from me. God, everything is possible for you. So if there's a way, could we just find another way? Could this particular suffering that I know is coming, could it be removed? Take it away, please. I know you can do all things. Could you do this? And that prayer is very similar to our prayer today, but with one crucial change. See, Jesus' first prayer is not, God, get me through this. Jesus' first prayer is, God, get me out of this. And I don't know about you, but that's comforting to me. Because that's very often my first prayer as well. When a storm rolls through and we see the immediate, uh, you know, doom 
Uh, it is natural and instinctive to say immediately, God, would you get me out of this? And when I see Jesus praying that same prayer, I'm reminded that that's not a bad prayer at all to pray. God, I see trouble coming my way. I'm in trouble. I don't want to be in trouble. And so God removed the trouble. That's, that's a fine prayer. Even Jesus says that prayer. And we pray that prayer because it seems like the best solution, doesn't it? Lord, get me out of this. Of course that's the right thing. I mean, it seems like it to us. It's logical to us. The best thing, surely, is that when we see a storm coming at us, if it would just split and go around us, surely that would be the best thing. But look at Jesus. He knows the cross is coming, and the weight of it has crumpled him to the ground, and he says, God, take it away and even Jesus, at least with a part of his mind, says removing the problem could work. Maybe there's a way. Maybe removing it is the answer. But what if removing the trouble is not the best thing? You know how Jesus' prayer is answered. God says no. God did not remove the storm of the cross from Jesus. He doesn't take the cup from Jesus. He has to endure it. That was God's plan. And so God get me out of this suffering is not always yes. When Jesus prays it, he's denied. So, so pay attention here. If the Son of God asks for a suffering to be removed and God the Father says no to that, then don't be surprised when he says the same to you. Get me out of this is a fine prayer to pray. We just need to understand that the answer will be no as much as it is yes. And so Jesus' prayer doesn't end there. He, does, he doesn't end with get me out of this. He continues. He says this. Look. He says, if not, Lord, remove this cup from me. But if not, in other words, if you choose to say no to the removal of this suffering, then God your will be done. That's his prayer. What's Jesus saying in that line, your will be done? He's saying this, it's, it's not my plan that matters, it's yours. Your plan is always better than my plan. And so if, if I want this cup to be removed and that's my plan, but my plan and your plan aren't the same plan, and it's, then it's not what I would choose, Right? I don't want to go through this kind of pain, but I know it will be better in the end with your plan, even if I have to face the pain. And so another way to articulate the idea of your will be done is, Lord, you know best. If it has to be done this way, then it's your will. And if it's your will, then God, please get me through this. And the answer to that prayer is always yes. And it's a yes to a couple of different things. Let me hit on a couple of things today. Number one, it's a yes to help. It's a yes to help. I want you to see what happens in the garden. Nobody uh, usually talks about this when they talk of Gethsemane. When we read the scripture earlier, it's probably uh, surprising to you if you caught the line. Most paintings that depict Jesus praying in the garden have Jesus, right? That's the picture that I've put up today, and maybe there's a beam of light of heaven coming down on his head or something like that, but typically, typically it's just Jesus by himself, and I think most of that, 
you know, that's how most of us have that pictured in our mind. And the disciples are off somewhere and Jesus is by himself. What we learn from Luke is that someone else is in the garden. Jesus prays, God, I'd like you to take this cup from me, but if you don't, your will be done. Would you get me through this? And Luke tells us that in that moment, who shows up? An angel. An angel shows up. Jesus is not alone. And the angel is there to strengthen him. The angel's presence gives Jesus a second wind when he's almost at his end. The angel lifts Jesus up to a place where he begins to actually pray more earnestly, or we could say this, more resolutely. And so I think what we need to know going into this right away is that that kind of help and comfort is not just for Jesus. It's for you and it's for me as well. We can count on that same kind of consolation from God when we ask for help. Lord, please get me through this. Now, will an angel show up when we pray that prayer? I can't guarantee that, although I could tell you a hundred stories that I know of of people who testify that it really happened that way. But here's what I can guarantee. In some way, God will show up and God will help you. There's a man that has a dream and in a dream he's standing on a beach with God and he's watching all the scenes of his life flash across the sky and below each of the scenes, the man sees two sets of footprints on the shoreline. One made by him and the other made by God. And looking at the entire span of his life, the man notices something disturbing. Beneath each of the scenes depicting the saddest and most painful events of his life, there's only one set of footprints. And the man turns to God and asks, Lord, I, I don't understand. You're supposed to help people when they're suffering. And yet, at those very moments when I need you to most, you completely abandoned me and you forced me to walk alone. Why did you do that? And the Lord looked at him with compassion and said, my son, don't you see the reason why there's only one set of footprints during those most terrible times of anguish in your life is because it was then that I carried you. Now, how many of you know the footprints poem? Uh, oh, I thought way more hands would go up. Uh, there were a lot of hands. Uh, most of us have heard that kind of story, that poem. When you see just that picture, it brings uh, that to your mind. In fact, it's been replayed enough that it's kind of become somewhat of, of a joke. People poke fun at this poem all the time. Let me, let me show you a few things here. Uh, here's a little cartoon. My child, I never left you. Those places with one set of footprints, that was when I carried you. That long groove over there is when I dragged you for a while. One time I hid you in that little sand hole while I got a hot dog. That's beautiful. Here's, here's another one. Uh, Jesus walks on water and leaves footprints in the sand. I mean... You figure that one out yourself. Next one. Um, when asked why there was only one set of footprints, Jesus replied, the sand people ride single file to hide their numbers. Now, you either get that one or you don't. Uh, you might need to go back and watch Star Wars for that one, okay? Um, honestly, when I hear the footprints poem, I kind of roll my eyes. I, I'm a total cynic, okay? And I really cannot believe that I'm using it in a sermon, to tell you the truth. But footprints doesn't hang in my house, it doesn't hang in my office, but there's a reason that it won't die. There's a reason that we still like it. There's a reason 
that it strikes a chord with us. And I, I can smirk all I want about it, but there's truth in it because we've all had these times in our life where, where we've been thrown curveballs and the pain was unbearable and we didn't think we would ever make it through. Maybe we couldn't sleep. We just wanted life to roll back a few days so that things could change. Maybe we could make a different decision. We lay in our bed and we look at the ceiling in tears and it seems like we are overwhelmed to the point where we are going to be swallowed up by our grief. And, but, but somehow, some way, we get through the day. And then we get through another day. And then we get through another day. And the pain is still there, but, but color starts to come back to our life just a bit. And then one day, some, at some point, we wake up and we find that we made it through. And to describe that journey, most of us would probably not use the footprints poem, but we would say the exact same thing. We would say that in our distress, there was, there was something else that carried us. There was this power, this strength that helped us that was not our own. There really was one set of footprints. And so what trouble, what pain, what affliction has come to your mind as we've rolled through the day so far? And beneath what scene in your life, would there be only one set of footprints? See, the more we pray this prayer, God, please help me through this suffering, the more of those scenes in our life there will be. Because the answer to God get me through this is always yes, he will carry us through. Now, that is a pretty big promise to make on behalf of God. That he will always show up in your pain and get you through it. And so I want to show you what I have found to be the reason that I believe that this is absolutely true. We need to go back into the garden and back into Luke's account specifically. And in Luke's account, he gives details to us that Matthew and Mark uh, don't give. The angel is one detail that we've already talked about that only Luke gives us. Here's another one. Luke writes in his gospel that Jesus is in agony. This word that he uses is only used one time in all of Scripture, and it's right here, agony. Jesus is in anguish. It's so much, and here's another detail that only Luke gives us. It's so much agony that he begins to be, uh, there begins to be blood in his sweat. Jesus is in such agony, he's been stunned and astonished so deeply that he actually begins to sweat drops of blood. Now, that's possible, by the way. It's very rare, but it is possible. There's such an intense shock that can happen to a human body where blood is actually pulled out of your capillaries and into your sweat. And so, usually when we pray, what happens is we feel better after a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, Joyce, another staff member, and I went and we met Edith at Edith Lafarge's house, and Edith was in her last hours of life, and her daughter is there, and um, her daughter's beside herself, just, just not, just really worried. And so we were able to read scripture and, and pray with them, and after we did, Edith's daughter said this, I felt a peace come over me after you did those things, and I knew everything was okay. 
And it was even that night, uh, just hours later, that Edith passed away. And even the next day, her daughter, as I talked with her, said, said that very same thing to me again. After you prayed for us, I was okay. See, usually when we pray, things get better. But I want you to look at what happens when Jesus prays. God sends an angel to help him through, and he begins to pray more earnestly and resolutely And it's after he does all of this praying that things actually get worse for Jesus. The agony and the shock and the physiological stress of the blood and sweat, it all comes after Jesus has spent a significant time in prayer already. Prayer makes things worse. And so the question is why? What on earth could have rocked Jesus to his very core in such a visceral way that even praying would make things worse? Luke also adds another little detail that the other writers don't, and it's up at the very top. We have to go back up to the very beginning of the passage. He says that the disciples and Jesus left the Last Supper, and then Jesus, as was his custom, went to the Mount of Olives or Gethsemane to pray. And what it tells us is that prayer was not a one-off for Jesus. And of course, we know that's true, right? If you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is always going off to pray. It was a keystone activity for him. Jesus is consistent in his life with solitude with his Father. That was his custom, to go and pray. And even the place, even Gethsemane, was more than likely a consistent part of his prayer routine. More than likely, it was his preferred place of prayer. And so when he needed God, when he needed the love of his Father, he would turn to pray, and he would turn specifically to this place to pray, and he would always find the strength that he needed. And so Jesus here is running plays out of the Jesus playbook. There's no improvisation going on. He needs to pray. He prays all the time, and so he goes off to pray at his very normal place to pray. The disciples know what's going on. They know the playbook. But when he gets there, And as he prays on the last night of his life, when he needed God's voice and love and care the most, what if he got something else instead? What if the sorrow and being troubled and feeling crushed by this weight wasn't just because of what he knew he was going to face in a few hours on the cross? What if if it was something else? What if the anxiety and the dread he feels in this moment come because He is God's only beloved son, and here he is going to the father that he loves in hope of finding strength in his hour of greatest need. He's going to his father that he loves in the moments before his betrayal, before the cross that he will suffer on. What if Jesus, the beloved son, begins to pray, but instead of heaven opening up before him, as it has always done, hell is what he sees instead. That's what commentators tell us is what happened to Jesus in the garden. He's after consolation from God, but instead he gets a foretaste of of the cup waiting for him, the cup of God's judgment and God's wrath, and he gets a glimpse of what it's going to be like to lose the relationship that he has always had with God. He comes by prayer to draw help from the strongest relationship He has, and what he finds is that relationship isn't there. 
And that's what brings him to his knees. That's why he's troubled. That's what Mark writes. If we go to the book of Mark, Mark says that Jesus was troubled. It means hopeless. There are only three Greek words in the entire New Testament for the idea of depression. And this word troubled is the strongest word of the three. And what I've learned from people who have gone through uh, the deepest depressions imaginable is that depression usually brings them to the point, if if they follow it to its end, it brings them to a point where they truly believe that there is no way out. They truly believe that death is the only choice they have, that there's nothing else. It is total despair, and that's where Jesus is. Without the prospect of God the Father in his life, Jesus is at the point of despair. I'm in sorrow even to the point of death. That's what he says. Rejection is never a day at the beach, right? But there are degrees. If I meet somebody one time, and then I find out that, um, you know, they don't like my beard or something like that, and and they never want to talk to me again, well, I mean, that hurts, right? But I've only met them one time, and it's kind of a blip on my radar. If, on the other hand, if... One of you that I've known for a while, and, and we've been at this Jesus thing together over the years. Like, like one of you decides, I don't like Dusty anymore, he's out of my life. Well, that's a, that's a deeper knife, right? That's kind of a gutting. That's a relationship that I've counted on and I can't count on anymore because I've been rejected. But further still, if, if my wife decides that one day I'm no longer fit to be around, oh, that's not just a nick. That's not just a deep wound. That's an absolute slaughtering. I would be completely undone. If somebody, if a one-time meeting, if that person rejects me, eh. If you reject me, hmm. But if Amy rejects me, despair. I'm undone. And so do you see what Jesus is going through? The deepest marriage or family or friend relationship that we could put on the table as an example has absolutely nothing in comparison to the relationship that Jesus has with his father. You don't even have a relationship with yourself that's as deep and as close as the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. And so for Jesus to get here in this moment and to get even a hint as he prays that he might lose that relationship, it terrorizes him so much that it begins to push blood through his pores. And this is just the beginning. It's just the glimpse of what it will cost Jesus to pay for our sin by sacrificing himself. It's just a glimpse of the kind of cup that is waiting for him. And so if it's just a glimpse, then what must it have been like to actually drink the cup on the cross? But he did it. He suffered the most intense agony anyone has ever Suffered, And I want you to understand what God was asking of Jesus. He said, Jesus, I want you to obey me, and if you obey me, I will crush you. I want you to follow my will, and when you do, I'll give you a cross for your faithfulness. 
I want you to obey me, and when you do, I'm going to abandon you. I'm going to completely cast you off. I'm going to send you into hell itself. God has never said that to anyone before or since, only to Jesus. You know what God says to you and me? God says, obey and you'll live. And how do we answer God? Nah, I don't think so. Here's what God said to Jesus, obey and you'll die. And he says, I will. In the garden, as, as he caught a momentary view of the suffering to come, Jesus could have aborted the mission. He, he could have said, why should I literally go to hell for these disciples of mine who don't understand me? They can't even stay awake. They won't stand by me. They're all going to scatter. Why should I do this for them? He could have just run, but he didn't. He suffered for us. And here it is. Here's why I know the answer to this prayer, God, please get me through this, is always yes. And this is the punchline of the sermon. If you don't take anything away, take this. If Jesus did not abandon you in the middle of his own suffering, then he will never abandon you in the middle of yours. Jesus is so committed to you that he stayed. He endured the suffering. And because Jesus suffered for us, he will always suffer with us. And that's how we know when we pray, God, please get me through this suffering, that the answer will always be yes. And I said earlier that this answer is a yes to, to help, but it's also a yes to hope. It's a yes to hope. And let me finish by saying one line about hope, that Jesus knows what it means to be hung on a cross. He knows what it means to die. He knows what it means to be buried, but he also knows what it means to walk his way out of a cold and dark tomb. And that's the hope. Father God, you are our help through our suffering. Savior Jesus. Let our suffering not bring us despair, but would you, would you help our suffering to bring hope? Be with us in our pain. God, please get us through our suffering. And we thank you that the answer is yes. And it's in the name of the, the Savior who suffered for us and now suffers with us that we pray. And everybody says, amen.